Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. Telehealth saw a tremendous bump in utilization at the beginning of the pandemic. By some estimates, 70% of healthcare was being conducted virtually during the spring of last year. Pretty early on, CMS and many states waived certain telehealth requirements that made it easier to use, and many commercial carriers waived member cost sharing, not just on COVID-19-related telehealth, but on all telehealth. And now that we're all hopefully moving into the bright lights of a post-pandemic world, into a, some kind of new normal, what is the future of this tool, this telehealth, telemedicine, that we've leaned on so heavily for the last 15 months? With us in the studio today is someone who can answer that question, Anne Mon Johnson, CEO of the American Telemedicine Association, or ATA. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Albright. My day job is Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous Payments. Z-E-L-I-S, Zealous's mission is to enable providers to simplify and save on their payments and claims. I also serve as the Communication Committee Chair for WEDI. That's W-E-D-I. WEDI is a national membership organization where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. And as I said, today we're honored to have Ann Mon Johnson, CEO of the American Telemedicine Association, or ATA. Ann has been in healthcare for over 20 years. Most recently, she served as CEO of Zest Health, as well as board chair and advisor to Connect Health. And Ann actually sold her first company to WebMD in 2006. And so very glad to have you here on The Collective Voice, especially given the importance of telemedicine in the past year and, and helping us to think through what its future is going to look like. Well, thank you so much for having me. I love telling this story, and it's, it's really terrific to see the growing interest and commitment to telehealth across the country and around the globe. So thank you so much. Well, you're, 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 I think you're, you're, the importance of it, you're, you're in the headlines every day, right? Not just telemedicine, but probably you as well, making comments on what Congress is thinking, what the states are thinking. Uh, tell us how you got here. Uh, when when you were uh, in high school, where you think, ah, I think I want to get into telemedicine. What, what, what was that journey like? Uh, well, it was a great journey. I've been very, very lucky throughout my career. And I think I was being a little bit modest or kind on my age when I said over 20 years. It's actually probably been a little bit longer. But the most relevant portions of it include working in a multi-hospital system in Minneapolis eons ago. And then um, the most important event was joining Michael Sachs, who's unfortunately passed away way too young at a company called the Sachs Group that he started in the 1980s. And I joined him and uh, really was part of that ride for 10 years. And we eventually sold it to a private equity firm. But what I learned then was an awful lot about healthcare data and just how important it was for people to understand data and how they could use it to make better decisions. So our applications were very much focused on hospitals, health plans, eventually employers, medical device companies, and it was a B2B play. And um, that was really the genesis of everything I did subsequently. I started a company with three colleagues from Sachs in 2000 called Subimo that was all about getting consumers information and using healthcare data and decision support tools to navigate the healthcare system and make 
better decisions for themselves and their family. And um, then sold that, as you said, to WebMD and went on to some other adventures. And in 2017, I had been in four early stage or startup companies, and I decided I really wanted to change and had been in Chicago my entire career, nearly my entire career, and decided to move to D.C. because I had friends here. I think it's a gorgeous city. I think it's exciting. I love walking and looking up and seeing all these historic buildings and monuments. So I moved and uh, ended up getting recruited to be CEO of the ATA, and I joined the organization in 2018. And I was excited about it because I saw telehealth, telemedicine as a consummate expression of consumerism in healthcare, which has been my driver. I think that healthcare can be confusing, it can be overwhelming, it's not fair, it's not equitably distributed. I was truth be told, a licensed insurance broker for a year in the state of Illinois. So I think sometimes it's deliberately confusing. And so I saw telehealth as really the essence of where healthcare needed to be, meeting people where they are. And so joined the organization in 2018. And at that time, telehealth had been around for a number of years, and the ATA itself had been around for over 20 years. And um, what was interesting then was this whole notion that you know, there were a lot of pioneers, there were a lot of academicians, clinicians who really began this industry, but engagement and adoption were pretty low. And so I uh, worked with the board and with other stakeholders to come up with a new vision for the organization, because historically the ATA had been focused on CPT codes and uh, getting reimbursed and licensure, which are very important for our business, obviously. But it's difficult to create a broad coalition and to emotionally connect with a CPT code. I mean, some of us can, but for the most <laughs> part, that's difficult. So anyway, uh, came out with this vision that we're here to ensure that people get care where and when they need it, that when they do, they know it's safe, effective, and appropriate, while enabling clinicians to do more good for more, pay more people. So that really became the quadruple aim, if you will. And uh, so it was under that banner that we really recast the ATA and really uh, started to build the membership and expand it. And, you know, I know that telemedicine and telehealth have some uh, interesting um, elements to them in terms of regulatory baggage or perceptions on what they mean, but we broadened the definition and really expanded who we are and what we consider to be telehealth. And it's been quite an adventure ever since. <laughs> Very good. Well, uh, I imagine, uh, especially for the last two years, but um, uh, I think I read somewhere you have 10,000 members? In well, th that was a, an old way of counting. Uh, the way okay. we talk about the organization today is we have over 400 organizations that are members of the ATA. And that includes delivery systems like Ashner, Intermountain, Sutter, Avera eCare. It includes payers like Humana and United, academic medical centers like UC Health, and then a range of solution providers going from Amwell and Teladoc Health, which are almost household names now because of the pandemic, to organizations that are enablers of delivery systems providing telehealth like Zipnosis and BrightMD, to organizations that um, are very tech forward or asynchronous in their approach, like Babylon Health, 
and then um, companies that have been uh, historically condition specific, like Hims and Roe and GoodRx. Um, and then we have a number of organizations that are focused on remote monitoring, like Vivify and Validic and uh, Livongo, which is now, of course, part of Teladoc Health. And then a range of organizations that are in the hardware business, like Philips, um, organizations like HP and Intel and Microsoft and Amazon. So you see it's a very diverse and eclectic assortment, but they're all there to make sure that people get care where and when they need it. So I think that's, that's fascinating. And I can see you, you you keep repeating the phrase too, is when you made that shift to make it, to, to, to talk about what you, what telemedicine is, when you made it consumer centric, when you made it patient centric, it sounded like there was a serious shift also in the kind of people or kind of organizations and entities that were interested in it. It's 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 a it's a great kind of capture and maybe uh, uh, an idea for other groups that are trying to get people excited about you know the obscure uh, the obscure subjects of health IT uh, to bring the patient in it, make the patient in the middle, and then tell the story around the patient. Absolutely, and you know I I come to this with my career in building startups. And so my focus is on my members or the clients. And I look at the ATA as a club and that I want them to join and I wanna provide so much value to our members that they'll never wanna drop. So it's, it's a very client-driven orientation, both in terms of patients, but also what I provide to our members in terms of getting the word out and the message. And that's really been no more relevant than today with the pandemic and how we're dealing with things now post-pandemic. Excellent. So let's talk about the pandemic. Clearly, uh, uh, it was something that uh, every healthcare uh, provider leaned on. Every hospital had to rethink. And in some cases, they had turned around their entire business model to, to, to go virtual care or remote care. Uh, very impressive. Is there something about the story of telemedicine over the pandemic uh, are there things that we didn't hear that maybe we need to know about how telemedicine related, uh, what was going on there? Well, I think the first thing is that what we say at the ATA is we like to remind people that we had a lot of problems in the healthcare system prior to the pandemic hitting. And so I'm old enough, I've been in healthcare long enough to have studied the Dartmouth Atlas and the idea that there is enormous variation in cost and quality, there's inadequate access to clinicians, your geography is your healthcare destiny. That is a problem that existed prior to the pandemic that absolutely got accelerated um, during the pandemic. And I think that's important because what's happened now is that there's been such a, a recognition at a national level of issues that we've had with systemic racism in healthcare and elsewhere that we now have a opportunity and an obligation to use our platform to address that and really mitigate those problems. So I always come out with that first as a reminder to people. I think the thing that also happened was that the community of solution providers and delivery systems and physicians were absolutely brilliant and innovative in their approach of getting in front of their patients. I mean, it was just astonishing how much energy and outpouring of goodwill 
and collaboration of, you know, everybody was going to come out with a symptom checker that you could use on your smartphone or your computer. And they were all willing to share what they had learned in that process and make that happen. They were willing to give their time generously to the administration, to the federal government and support their efforts. So those are some unsung stories. I think the other is just the enormous benefit that happened because of remote monitoring. Remote patient monitoring is this godsend. And we had an amazing you know, experiment with it. And I know that it's really proved its worth. So the idea that uh, Intermountain, they would let patients stay at home with oxygen and pulse oximeters and monitor them from afar and make sure that they were okay. And if things were slipping, they'd bring them back into the hospital. So I think that that's been um, a really interesting story. And then the whole idea that the hospital of the future is going to be your living room or your bedroom, I mean, at home is, is a very important play as well. I think the final thing I'd say about the pandemic was just how surprised people were. You know, I, I had to explain what I did for a living prior. And now people are like, oh, telehealth, that's sort of cool. And um, a lot of people used it. And they're like, wow, this is great. And it became more than just a convenience element. It had a real life-saving element to it as well, not just for patients, but for providers. So, right. right. Very good. Okay. And so now uh, elective surgeries are coming back. Um, the, the walls are back up in the hospitals. And we're starting to think about hospitals as a building again. Uh, what's the future of telemedicine? And, and maybe we'll, we'll, we'll hit the legislative stuff in a second. But what do you see is going to happen over the next couple of years? And is this, a, is this a, a boost that we need in the pandemic? And now we're going to retreat and we'll get back to those numbers? Are, 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 is the healthcare industry really going to use this to, to open up access, like you say, and, and where and when the patient needs it? Well, certainly that's our aspiration. And what we're seeing from members is that there are a number of them that are continuing to see a, a steady increase above where they were prior to the pandemic. So we all saw the data with Medicare fee-for-service visits that one-tenth of one percent were virtuous, uh, virtual and um, then it was over 50% during the height of the pandemic. That's dropped down, but it hasn't gone back to one-tenth of 1%. So I think it's also important to acknowledge that telehealth is not for everyone. It's not for everything. And so we are really very focused on defining what hybrid looks like. So what are the use cases where telehealth is really excellent? What is the patient population for that? Um, if you have people with chronic pain, you know, how can you manage their pain remotely? And in fact, that's one of the stories that comes out of the pandemic is that people are able to do it. So I think it's this uh, definition of hybrid. I think it's also the uh, idea of how we're going to once and for all use technology and telehealth to reimagine care. Because again, if you look at the story of behavioral health prior to the pandemic, one out of five Americans had a mental health issue. 50% of counties had no physical mental health services available. And yet with the pandemic, behavioral health surged, behavioral health needs surged. And um, what we saw was that virtual was more than fine in many, many instances. And so we knew from the ATA's work in creating practice guidelines 
that were published on mental health, telemental health in 2018 and endorsed by the American Psychiatric Association that virtual is as good, if not better than face-to-face. And that was proven out. So the show rate, no show rates dropped. Um, people were able to access care. Clinicians were able to have greater visibility into the lives of their patients for good, bad, or otherwise. So I, I think that we will definitely see it stick with behavioral health as well as with other conditions. I think that's fascinating, actually, because what you said, and, and you gave a few examples, but maybe we could talk about it for a second, that, that actually the, the delivery of mental health care um, was, in some cases, was better virtual than it was uh, if you went in, in, to, a, to the four walls. Talk to me a little bit more about that. That's fascinating. Well, again, I think the the whole surge, and it's not it's not perfect. Remember that you have a lot of uh, kids in school, for example, and nurses were r- rightly so very concerned about these kids not being able to have eyes on them all the time the way they would on a regular basis within w- with them in school. But people were able to have one-on-one conversations with their therapists. They even found that there were certain apps that they could use that provided a level of relief, um, a level of guidance that and assurance and helping them ease their anxieties. We're seeing a whole surge of VR and AR companies that are dealing with stress, anxiety, uh, movement, uh, treatment of chronic um, or traumatic stress syndrome. So those are the types of things that I'm, I, I believe that our members are working on and really going to be expanding going forward. Very good. Very good. Very interesting. Um, so let's talk about the, um, the social determinants of health. And, and maybe that's not uh, the right terminology. I was corrected by one guest and say, these are, let's not call them social determinants. Let's call them what they are. They're obstacles uh, that certain populations have to accessing care. Um, how does telemedicine uh, uh, approach that problem or, or solve some of that problem. And, and I think m- most of it has that general idea of, well, how much easier is it if you don't have a car and, and don't have the uh, hospital close by that, of course, uh, a telephone or a video is better. But maybe there's something else that we're missing there that where telemedicine can really be used as a tool. Well, I think the whole fact that audio only, that a phone call was a huge relief in a lot of situations proves the point that telehealth can be very helpful in regardless of whether or not you have enormous broadband capacities in an area. Um, I think though that it's, it's, it's a tricky topic because we really wanna make sure that when we talk about the hospital at home, that when we have you go home, your home is equipped to handle you It has adequate capabilities in terms of connectivity. It has adequate space to allow you to have the um, privacy that you may need. And and these are not, we know this, we know know for a fact that these are not um, privileges that are enjoyed equally across the country. So that's one thing. But we also know that with 130 million Americans with some sort of chronic condition, we just don't have enough clinical resources to deal with them in a one-on-one fashion. And so, again, we have to use telehealth to help reimagine how care is delivered. And that's what I think we're seeing with delivery systems who are creating digital front doors, with many of the virtual first organizations that are really working on a different technology stack than, than what traditional providers have done. 
And so there's new and innovative ways of getting services to people. And again, our obligation as a society and as part of the society at the ATA is to ensure that everyone has access to this. And access. Um, some Again, we're seeing this every week. I think Congress was looking at um, uh, rules around telemedicine uh, last week. What is the role of the regulators? What is the role of the government? My, my sense is that at this point, the role is for the government to get as far out of the way as possible and to let things down and take away regulations. But maybe there's more to it and it's more subtle than that. Well, it's it's been very interesting for me because I did not play in the policy world before. So this has been an incredible education, uh, not one that I knew I needed, but nonetheless, it's been very, very interesting. Um, a couple of things. At the federal level, we have um, some real restrictions that were waived and are part of the public health emergency, waived as part of the public health emergency. And um, these requirements and regulations that were put in place, uh, many of them dated back to 1997, which was 14 years before the iPhone was invented. So just ponder that for a second and appreciate how arcane and outdated they were and how, in fact, what that enables um, telehealth or technology to deliver with the waivers what it always could do. So that, that's been important. Um, the other is that, so at the federal level, we're working very hard to make sure that the waivers become permanent and that people don't go off what we call the telehealth cliff, because there's a real possibility that that could happen. And so we're very active there. Um, there was an unfortunate uh, element in legislation that was passed at the end of 2020 that required an in-person pre-existing relationship um, between a patient and provider for telemental health services. We want that to go away. So um, th there are a number of things there that we're working on. And then, of course, at the state level, there were, as of December 2020, over 600 bills introduced at the different state legislatures. And so we are working hard to make sure that bad law is not passed, that good law stays in place, and um, really working on behalf of our members and with groups of our members to ensure that happens. So lots of activity, lots of impact at the federal and state level. As I said before, the two issues that we hear, or the three issues that we hear a lot about is that somehow telehealth is more costly, which I, I beg to differ. The second is that it's somehow not delivering good quality medicine. And then the third is this notion of fraud, waste, and abuse, or program integrity as it's referred to. And so we're a little frustrated because we think that there have been a number of studies um, that have demonstrated the value of telehealth, have demonstrated the cost effectiveness of it. Um, you can also look at it and say, the issue of having no care versus some care is better, you know, some is better than nothing uh, in many instances. So we're working hard to make sure that we're able to support these um, and refute these myths associated with telehealth. And that's really a big focus for us now.
Gotcha. Gotcha. And is there something that government can do to facilitate the the, the growth or maybe just the use of telehealth? Is this like, uh, let's work on broadband, let's make sure that uh, rural communities have access to the technology? Is there more to it that, that government can do? Well, certainly broadband is one of them. Um, and making sure there's adequate connectivity, not just in rural communities, but there are plenty of urban deserts as well. So we have to address the entire country. Um, the regulations, there are specific regu regulations that were waived around uh, federally qualified health centers and rural health centers serving as distant sites. They're allowed to do that now, which is fantastic and should be maintained. So this is the sort of thing that government can do. I think that um, the other thing that's worth pointing out to your audience is the importance of state compacts for licensure. So the nurses are have a compact and reciprocity in 37 states. That's not the case with physicians. So we hope that uh, the medical compacts increase the number of states that adopt them. But unlike any um, confusion that people may have heard, this is a state-by-state -state effort. This is not something that the federal government can wave their magic wand and fix. Right, right. Um, we started the conversation with um, thinking about telemedicine uh, from the consumer standpoint like and making it consumer-centric. What is your vision for the future of United States healthcare? And, mm -hmm. and this could either include telemedicine or I imagine it would, right? But five, 10 years from now, what would you like United States healthcare to look like? Well, first, I'd like it to be more evenly distributed and that the overall health of the population improves and not just for the privileged or for the few. The second is we've been talking about value-based programs for a long time. I think that what we have to acknowledge is that we're spending a lot of money and not getting the return that we should be getting as a country on our investment. And so I think, you know, going to value-based programming and payment is really where the future should take us. And then I think that the beauty of telehealth is the ability to meet people where they are on the terms that they want to be met. And so whereas some of us really do want the comfort and to have the physical laying of hands as somehow that's going to be wonderful. There are many others who don't want it. And so they're perfectly happy and they want to be met on their terms. And so that that's really what I think. If we allow technology and if we allow telehealth broadly defined, do that, I think we're going to be much better off as a society. Excellent. Excellent. That's a that's a great note to, to end on. But before we leave, are there any resources or books or websites uh, that you want, might want to direct uh, listeners to to find out more about what we've talked about today? Absolutely. So I would be remiss if I didn't call out the um, uh, telehealth resource centers that are part of the federal government. There are 12 of them. There's the, um, the Center for uh, Health Policy out in uh, California. May Kwan is the executive director, and she does fantastic work in monitoring um, on legislation. Likewise, our team here at the ATA, which is headed by Kyle Zebley, is puts a lot of information on the website, our website, americantelemed.org. And then um, we have an annual conference in June, just uh, giving a shameless plug for that, where we're going to have a host of really terrific speakers and sessions every Tuesday and Thursday. And of course, it'll all be virtual. It'll all be uh, on demand as well. So 
encourage people to check that out. Great. Sounds like great resources. Sounds like a great conference. Uh, I think this is an exciting time for you, your organization, and telemedicine. Thank you. Thank this you. Is terrific. Thank you. I appreciate the discussion. We've and, been talking with We've been talking with Ann Mon Johnson, CEO of the American Telemedicine Association, and this has been the collective voice of Health IT, a weedy podcast where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. Find this episode and many more on our website, weedy.org. Thank you all for joining us and be safe.